I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 16th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that God tells husbands and wives to be one flesh with one another to preclude the warfare that goes on between women if a man has more than one. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Well, this morning is uh, March 14th, and our lesson for this morning uh, is the 16th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text for this morning is Genesis chapter 29 verse 31 and 32 in the Bible says this. Now when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore, my husband will love me. God bless the reading of his word. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And for those who are listening that are also on Facebook, I've opened up my Facebook page so that you can send me any questions that you may have about my sermon via chat. Now, there's a delay in the internet broadcast, so we will not be able to, con con uh, to converse interactively. But I'll try to answer your questions as best I can, given the technical limitations. And also, if you want to follow the PowerPoint presentation while you're listening, it's the first blog entry on the website. Now, we, before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for our further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, we left our last lesson after a discussion about anger. The protagonist of the last episode, Jacob, tricked his brother Esau out of the blessing from his father Isaac and then left his father's camp after Esau displayed his anger at Jacob by threatening to kill him when their father died. Jacob fled to his uncle Laban's home, hoping that Esau would cool off. There Jacob fell in love with his cousin Rachel and agreed to work for Laban for seven years in order to receive Rachel's hand in marriage. 
Now, Rachel had an older sister, Leah, with an eye defect that made her unattractive, and she had no serious prospects for marriage. And when Jacob completed his seven years of service to Laban and requested his bride Rachel in payment, Laban decided to palm off Leah on Jacob, trusting that Jacob couldn't tell Rachel and Leah apart in the dark. Laban's scheme was successful, but the next morning, an angry Jacob went to see Laban. Laban diffused Jacob's anger by promising to give him Rachel as well after Jacob finished his honeymoon week with Leah. Now Jacob tricked Esau, and now Laban has tricked him. And one of the points that I made about being angry is recorded in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, which tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And God repays. Esau could not get even with Jacob after Jacob left home, but although Jacob left home, he never left the side of God who was taking care of the situation. Now, interestingly, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you to not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward have you do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet your brethren only what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this is called radical Christianity. Jesus was so confident in the justice of God to his people that he told us not to defend ourselves, but allow ourselves to be misused because there is a greater power in the universe that is watching over all of us and is active in evening up the score. And this works. Many of us have seen the macro evidence of the truth of this passage in our own lifetime in the works of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The people on the front lines of his movement were trained in their churches to turn the other cheek when set upon by the racist law enforcement of the day. They took a great deal of abuse and in some cases were even killed. But God eventually moved, shifted the leadership of America, and eventually 
it became a shame to be called a racist in this country. Dr. King gave his life, but in so doing cemented both the successful completion of the cause for which he struggled and his place in history. But it's a difficult calling to be a radical Christian. Most of us are content to simply become less pagan and improve our responses to situations that make us angry gradually as we age. We have an affinity for our emotional responses and we suppress them only with great difficulty. But as our takeaway statement indicates, this life is preparation for the next life. And we may find that the more radical we are here, the more responsibility we have there. So this life is a learning experience, and Jacob is learning that what goes around comes around. But Jacob does not take the coming around part well. After Jacob completed his honeymoon week with Leah, the Bible tells us in Genesis 29, verse 30, then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Now, Genesis 2.24 tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one of the reasons that God tells husbands and wives to be one flesh with one another is to preclude the warfare that goes on between women if a man has more than one. And I've often spoken of the bonding chemical oxytocin that God designed to emotionally join a woman to a man. I have also said that men do not have this chemical in the same concentrations as do women. Women commit to some degree emotionally, hormonally, and chemically, but men make conscious intentional commitments, so it is a good idea for a woman to not expose herself sexually to a man that has not made the formal commitment of marriage to her. On the other hand, men can comfortably have sex with any number of women. That is the reason that Genesis 2.24 is a commandment. God tells men to restrict themselves, but particularly in the Old Testament period, God was somewhat flexible about the enforcement of that commandment. God's design was monogamy, but God allowed polygamy, if for no other reason than to show us the problem that it causes. Now, the first problem with polygamy is shown in the A portion of Genesis 29 and 30, which says, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, since the emotional attachment of a man is not hormonal, but volitional, a man with more than one partner can, and generally does, have a favorite. Now, men that have a favorite partner are less likely to treat the partner that is not their favorite equally. And God anticipates this problem in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, which says, If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons 
that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So marital relationships do not only affect the husband and wife, but also the children. If a man has a favorite wife, he likely feels more affection for the children that he has by her than he does that that he does for those that he has by his left's favorite wife, which damages the children as they feel their father's rejection. Of course, this problem can be avoided by a man having only a single wife, but that wisdom does not help Jacob at this point. Jacob didn't campaign for two wives, but he has them, and we will see the problem that his situation causes. Now, one problem is sexual frequency. With two wives, a man has to figure out in which wife's bed he's going to spend the night tonight. I suppose a man could develop an equitable schedule, but in practical application, a man would probably decide to spend more time with the wife that he prefers. Wouldn't you agree? Well, how does that make the unloved wife feel? Now, suppose the unloved wife reacts with anger. Anger makes a woman less attractive to a man. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13 tells us a foolish son is the ruin of his father and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. And the idea of a continuing continual dripping is analogous to Chinese water torture. Proverbs 21, 19 and 25, 24 tells us it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And these passages of scripture are not the bitter ramblings of a frustrated husband, but they are the divinely inspired written word of God. God is warning the men among us that are not married to make sure that the person with whom they join themselves is neither angry nor contentious. Because if a man fails to be diligent about this matter, he will regret it later. And when the unloved wife reacts with anger, her anger pushes her husband farther from her, like to the wilderness or the corner of the housetop, or more likely, to the bed of his other wife. No one volunteers for Chinese water torture. Most people do what they can to avoid torture. And the more he avoids her, the angrier she gets, and so the cycle builds upon itself. Now a woman marries her husband to have someone with whom to have a loving relationship. She anticipates that the two of them would become one flesh or at least spend loving time together. She thought that she was getting a companion and women are so designed that they need a companion. Remember all those bonding chemicals that I keep talking about? And now her husband is with another woman. 
It drives her crazy. And in this case, she can't even beat up the other woman because the other woman is her little sister. So Laban's trick didn't just hurt Jacob. Laban's trick hurt Leah as well. Yeah, Leah is off Laban's hands, but he didn't exactly put Leah in a position that Leah could enjoy. But guess who is still watching and still evening up things? Yes, you guessed it. God. Genesis 29, 31 records, when the loss, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah, baby, you need someone to love and your husband doesn't love you. Well, here you go. Here's a child. Not only that, but it's a male child, which will help you draw in your husband. Genesis 29, 32 records. So Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, have you ever heard of baby mama drama. Well, it didn't start on the Maury show. That's one of the places where it is now, but it didn't start there. Husbands aren't the only ones who can cause the oxytocin response in women. Babies do as well. And if a woman needs someone to love her, a baby boy is almost perfect. The baby can't leave. He, out, he won't be out playing ball with the guys or chasing other women. The baby will be with his mother 24-7 for at least a few months, and he'll be stuck to her leg for probably about five years. He'll cuddle and snuggle, and he'll look up to his mom with those big bright eyes and make her feel wanted and needed. He needs her for everything, and she can make sure that he gets it. When a woman has a baby boy, she has a man that loves her unconditionally, and whom she can tell what to do. It's a perfect setup. Except Leah wanted Jacob to love her. She wanted the baby to draw Jacob in. But babies don't draw men in. Now to a woman, a baby boy is love and affection. To a man, a baby boy is a project. Now, when Paul was born, I thought about all the things that I could teach him. Yeah, I carried him around when he was a baby, but I was just taking care of him until he became big enough to do something. That's when sons are fun. I will never forget the time we got off the plane in Hawaii. We left Chicago at 8 a.m. in the morning, flew west for 11 hours, which would have made it 11 p.m. in Chicago, but it was 1 p.m. in the afternoon in Hawaii. And Paul was about three. He played on the plane as long as he could, but then finally he fell asleep. He was sleeping on my shoulder as I carried him through the airport, and he stayed asleep all the way to the hotel. But when I laid him down on the bed, he woke up. The room door was open because I was still bringing the bags in. Paul woke up, saw the open door, and started running for it. His mother yelled, Paul. Paul never broke stride. Paul, she repeated. Paul never stopped moving. I turned around and said, Paul. He stopped and looked at me. I pointed, and he went back to sit down on the bed. 
It's the tone of voice, I told my wife. Your voice sounds like him, his to him. You sound like another could, kid, but the deep voice is different. It gets him every time. Yeah, sons are fun. They cause some great moments between a husband and a wife. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 tells us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So sons are fun and there is strength in numbers. But this son, Reuben, didn't exactly fulfill his mother's expectation. Jacob was no more attracted to Leah after Reuben was born than he was before. And God was still watching. Genesis 29, 33 records, Then Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So Leah still feels unloved, but at least she has the babies to keep her company. Now she has two little boys running around to play with, to chase and to hug. But how's her relationship with Jacob? It's about the same. Genesis 29, 34 tells us, Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. Did you ever wonder why ch women that have children out of wedlock keep having them? It may not just be immorality. It may be her way of trying to attract her man. And he comes around every now and then like a hit and run driver. Jacob probably came to see Leah on the Thursday of the week that Rachel wasn't available. But although Jacob gave Rachel love rather than Leah, God gave Leah fertility and her sons are piling up. Genesis 29, 35 tells us, And Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Well, now Leah has enough children. Four little boys running around her skirt tails. I'm assuming they wore skirts back then. Jacob was still making his monthly runs and Leah was busy enough with the boys to recognize that Jacob was just not going to be there and that she should concentrate on her relationships with her sons and with God. Ever wonder why some churches are so emotional and are mostly attended by women? Church work can be a substitute for a relationship with a man, especially if you have the pastors or some deacons or some other man's attention at church. First Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 tells us, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And Genesis 2, 18 tells us, And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And logically, if it's not good for a man to be alone and women were created specifically for men, how can it be good for a woman to be alone? 
Women were created for men, which is why they have the bonding chemicals of which I have spoken. Women need the attention of men because they are drawn by design to the rush that they feel when those chemicals flow. After all, the prime directive from God, given in Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this that is what this is about. Fruitful multiplication leads to dominion. How can we have dominion over the earth if there are not enough of us to populate it? The baby boom generation caused one of the greatest expansions in the, of the economy in history. Why? Well, with all those children, the economy had to grow. First, industries that produce products for infant care exploded. Then it was the toy industry, as the baby boomers became old enough to play with toys. Colleges grew at an astronomical rate as the baby boomers moved through. And then the industries that catered to furnishing houses and supplying appliances, cars, and so on, experienced similar growth. As the baby boomers became adults and started their own family, the, the economy recycled itself over again. And as the baby boomers now hit the downside of life, we see our economy shrinking. Stores are going out of business because the baby boomers have enough stuff on the shelf so that we can stop buying. I talked last week about how cute my wife was when she came in with her new garment. I don't buy new garments. Why should I? I like black. Of course, you are free to disagree. Now, I was having a discussion last week about the recent statistic that 48% of black women between the ages of 14 and 49 are infected with an incurable sexually transmitted disease. In the discussion, I recommended that black women stop having sex out of wedlock and get married instead. And I was immediately bombarded by the position that, that of the many people getting married, which is not a bad solution, getting married just wasn't all that easy. Someone cited the statistic that there are 1.8 million more black women than there are black men in the first place. Someone else said that only 54% of black men ages 25 to 34 were available to marry. And it's true that 21% of black men in that age range don't have a high school diploma. 17% are chronically unemployed and 8% are in jail. And it's also true that the number of black women earning bachelor degrees has increased by 55% since the mid 1970s compared with a 20% increase among black men. And in law and medicine, among black women, the number of degree earners have soared 219%, but for black men, it has only increased 5%. And so, 70% of black women with BAs, MDs, and JDs are unmarried. 
and the discuss the consensus of the discussion was that black men need to step it up. And I had no choice but to agree with the conclusion. 42% of black women have never been married, which is double the rate of white women. And there are a lot of Leahs out there having children, which of course only contributes to the trends going in the direction that they are. And not Leah's exactly. After all, Leah was married to her baby daddy. He just spent most of his time with his other wife. So what's the solution? Well, the only solution I have is still the same one. I'm a man that has come to believe in design. And God has designed marriage as the relationship into which children should be born. If black women stop having sex with black men that are not married to them, black men will get their act in order rather than go without a woman. The sisterhood could motivate the brotherhood if the sisters would stick to the script. Now the Jews brought Jesus a woman that they caught in adultery. John chapter eight, verse four through 11 tells us, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is, out, who, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So marriage, rather than adultery or fornication, is the way to go. However, Jesus makes it clear that the law of God is not about condemnation, but about repentance. Sin doesn't send anyone to hell. The criminal that died on the cross next to Jesus, who was being executed for his crimes, went to paradise. The law is about repentance. Matthew 26, 28 tells us that Jesus said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Remission means forgiveness. Jesus forgave the woman just as Jesus will forgive baby mamas everywhere. But in his forgiveness, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world 
through him might be saved. Jesus Christ died so that our sins, being many, could be forgiven, and so that we might have a right and a just right to the tree of life that our first four parents rejected in the garden, preferring rather to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it is ours to choose. Starting today, we can choose sin leading to death and damnation, or we can choose repentance leading to eternal life. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20 tells us, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So let us make the choices that lead to life. As we conclude our discussion today with 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the understanding of your word. Help us to recognize that your design is still in place. Although parts of our society may be dysfunctional, the fact that we aren't doing the right thing does not change your word. So help us to do the right thing, and that when we do the wrong thing, help us to repent of it and to return to you and to realign our lives with that which you tell us to do and bless us, Lord, and give us the wisdom and knowledge that we require so that we will be able to understand that which you are telling us and live according to your word. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.